Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. So if you spend some time on the internet, you've probably come across phrases like microaggressions or trigger warnings or safe spaces and the like. And it's really interesting. It's, it's You're seeing a lot on college campuses where basically you're seeing some segment of the college population who are very sensitive emotionally to slights or even just awkward social encounters, and it triggers them uh, psychologically or emotionally. Two sociologists have gotten together, named Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning, and they recently published a paper, a theory as to why this, what they call victimhood culture, has arisen on college campuses. It was really interesting, so I had to have them on the show. Today on the podcast, we discuss these various moral cultures. Uh, we talk about honor and masculinity. We talk about what makes up a dignity culture, and we talk about uh, why or why they think this culture of victimhood is arising in our country and how it's a combination, a weird combination of honor culture and dignity culture. And we discuss some of the implications of this victimhood culture and what it what it means for how we handle conflict within our society. Really fascinating discussion. Think you're gonna enjoy it. So without further ado, Bradley Campbell and Jason Manny and victimhood culture. Bradley Campbell, Jason Manning, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you both are our our sociologists. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what brought you two together? Because you're on like separate parts of the country. One of you is on the West Coast, one of you is on the East Coast. Uh, How did you guys get together and start writing about, particularly we're going to talk about the victimhood culture, but moral cultures in general? So... um Jason and I went to graduate school together at the University of Virginia and studied under Donald Black. And Black has um, he's done a lot of work in the sociology of law, but um, what, what Black does and what we do generally is to study conflict, how people handle moral conflicts. And so um, we've done a lot, most work mostly in violence, um, violence and done it separately. I've you know, written about genocide. Jason has written about suicide. But in the course of our... Um, our work and our courses, we've um, dealt with these ideas of, of dignity and honor a lot, uh, honor cultures. So when you're studying violence, one of the things you immediately see is that it's connected a lot of times with honor, which is a kind of reputation for physical bravery. 
So you can think about it in societies where they fought duels. I mean, that's just one example. But but the idea that people need to maintain this reputation for bravery, they and what it, it ends up meaning is that slights are very important, and a lot of um, of honor disputes are about insults and slights, and people use violence in response to these. And so, but a lot of people had said that we transitioned to a culture of dignity, um, you know, and that's, you know, it, you, there's still, still pockets of honor among street gangs and stuff. But we, we um, and so in the dignity culture, you ignore slights, you ignore insults. But we started seeing these microaggression complaints, which we'll talk about in some, some other um, what, things that we see as manifestations of this new culture of victimhood. And it wasn't like honor, it wasn't like dignity. People were, were, were not ignoring slights but they also weren't responding to them violently. So we saw some, something new is arising. There's some kind of new moral cult, culture. Okay. So let's dig into this a little bit deeper about the different types of cultures. So you started off talking about um, honor cultures. And uh, you, you make the case that this was the first type of moral co- culture that we had, the type of culture we used to uh, resolve conflict. And you describe some of the characteristics, right? If uh, it's honor... I guess it's really hard for people to, in the modern West to understand honor because whenever they hear honor, I think they often think like integrity, right? I'm a man of honor. I'll keep my word. But we're talking about something. It's a, like you said, a reputation, but it's a certain type of reputation. Can you guys go into a little uh, deeper about what that reputation meant and why it was so important that you had to defend that reputation? Well, you see this classical notion of honor, which is not incompatible with reputation for sincerity or or honesty or other things we associate with honor today, but the core of it in earlier times and places, and today in certain times and places where law is weak or absent, is maintaining this reputation for toughness, a kind of pugnacity, a willingness to defend oneself at the drop of a hat. And you tend to find it exactly in those places where people rely on toughness as a means of protecting themselves, their family. It's a way of deterring predation or attack from other people. And so one of the characteristics of these honor settings is that there's not a stable or reliable legal system in place, not a way of peacefully resolving conflicts or deterring predation. And so people rely on this reputation for being tough as a way of protecting themselves. You see it in the classical form in, say, medieval societies or ancient societies. And you see a modern form of it in various low-income, high-violence neighborhoods in the United States. Recently, uh, a journalist, Jill Leovi, wrote a book about homicide in South L.A., for instance. She speaks of the need for young men to act tough when they walk the streets and project an image of being willing to retaliate quickly and severely in order to protect themselves in these high-crime areas. And um, this is curious, because, I mean, is it... um is that why honor, I'm guessing that's why honor existed in the past, because particularly in America, we there was an established law enforcement, really. We didn't have the police force like we did today. So if you wanted to um, protect yourself, you had to do it on your own. Right. And historically, the state was weakest in the South, which is where honor was the strongest. Yeah. And isn't there, I mean, I've, I don't know if this has been sort of disputed by some sociologists recently, but there's a theory that, you know, Southerners embrace honor because police state is weak, but also most of the migrants or the, most of the people who immigrated to the South were from Scotland and they were herders. Is there anything to that whole herder um, culture? Is it, it, something that it encourages an honor culture? 
Yes, I would say they, they almost certainly brought this culture with them and, um, and reproduced it to some extent in the South. And that's one of the ideas. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it is disputed, but even, you know, you know, you know the s- southeastern part of the United States still has more, you know, higher rates of violence than other parts of the country. And the South, uh, across the United States, because they migrated west, the same people. And so there is the idea that there's this, that kind of, um, you know, spreading of, of the culture. And yet it would have been rooted in, in, um, in hurting, the hurting societies that they came from. Yeah, and, and you, you find cross-culturally that herding societies often have this emphasis on strength because animals are movable property and usually stolen. Yeah, yeah. So like the cowboys and the farmers, right? The cowboys are typically more rambunctious. Ranchers are uh, more prone to like if you someone steals their horses, they're going to hang you. Farmers are sort of typically known to be peaceful, thinking in the long term, mm-hmm. probably helped embrace or bring in the dignity culture. Mm-hmm. Well, and so, I mean, I guess it makes sense uh, during a time when the um, when police or the state is at its lowest, uh, an honor culture would exist. I mean, that was the only way you can um, uh, remedy wrongs is if you do if you use self-help, like you all say. Um, but what's the downside of this? I mean, there is a dark side to honor cultures, particularly like, yeah, the, going beyond just retributive violence, but that can create a vicious cycle. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, um, it's you know, the big downside is that it's associated with a lot of violence. And, um, and, you know, in a certain society where there's not law, you can see why you, you, know, you need to maintain this reputation for toughness and engage in violence, maybe to prevent more in the future and to prevent yourself from being victimized. But it can also lead, you know, like, you know, to um, this sort of um, a, a chain of violence where um, there's retaliation for one act of violence that leads to retaliation for another in um in clan-based societies, um, there are you know, tribal societies. There are often there's often blood feuding where one clan, you know, a member of one clan has killed a member of another clan. The response is that people from the you know the clan of the victim go and kill somebody from the clan of the killer. Well, then they respond then by killing somebody from the other clan, and it keeps going back and forth, and can do so until they till they come up with some kind of truce. And you see this in um, in the inner cities. Jason mentioned the um, the book Ghetto Side by Joe uh, Leavoy, it's re- very recent, but the idea is, is, again, you have this, you know, especially when, you know, when homicides aren't dealt with by the state, when people aren't punished for them, you end up having this, this, uh, you know, this chain of retaliation that leads to a lot more violence overall than it would be if it's just quickly suppressed by the state. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, the reason why we've, we've written extensively about honor, sort of a his, the history of traditional honor, because it's so tied up with masculinity, right? Um, you talk about the, the characteristics in an honor culture that are um, prized are strength, uh, courage, willingness to retaliate against slights. Um, and I, I, you say there still exist in pockets of the modern West, particularly gangs, um, where honor cultures exist in their uh, fullest. But I've noticed that even amongst people like us, right, we're college educated white guys um, who there's like twinges of it a bit, right? Like there's like if a guy gets called a chicken, like that stings for some reason, um, even though, you know, We've it's like, got a little honor in us. There, yeah, we, we, st- we all still have a little bit of it in us. And I think it's interesting. I don't know if it's like a biological thing or if it's a cultural thing. I don't It's kind of it's, it's interesting. 
Mm-hmm. It's one of the things that, you know, when we're talking about like an honor culture, we see honor as something that, you know, it's sort of um, valued over other things. So it's still, it's still often, you know, um, a, a kind of status in other settings. It's, um, you know, bravery is, you know, is, is something that is, is still important and even your reputation for it. And yeah, even, even when you're taught, so if you're, you're in more of a culture of dignity where you're taught, don't respond violently, brush off insults. Yeah, I mean, like you're saying, I think we all have these, these moments where our blood boils and we can, you know, we're just you know, completely angry, you know. And, and, you know, the difference is that we have that kind of thing, you know, society you know, is telling us to not to respond, right? And when we think of what, what we're supposed to do morally. And if you're in an honor culture, though, if, if the full-blown culture of honor, you know, you would, um, it would be... It would be shameful for you not to respond. Your family would expect it. Other people would too, because you would you would uh, lose status. It wouldn't be just about a kind of a a momentary uh, feeling of anger that you you would want. Yeah, and you guys made this point in your in the paper as well is that although honor culture doesn't really exist uh, in the West and even in, in most industrial countries. It does exist, and it doesn't exist for people. It still exists on a nation-state level, right? Countries are always really concerned about, you know, okay, China, or you know, we just had it in the news recently. The U.S. like went into like Chinese territory, and the Chinese are like, we're going to do something to show that we saw that, and you can't respect us. And I guess it's because at a nation-state level, there isn't a higher authority you can really go to, correct? Correct. States oddly enough, exist in a stateless society. There is no uh, common court system they can go to. I mean, there are international organizations, but they have little real authority of any kind. And so states do still show this concern with maintaining their reputation and with being able to respond to aggression in a aggressive manner. Yeah, it is. So yeah, people want to see honor culture manifest, just watch international politics. Okay, so let's talk. We've talked about honor culture. Uh, the the second the the second type of moral culture that we transitioned to after honor culture was what you all called dignity dignity culture. Uh, and you mentioned that one of the characteristics is that you don't use violence. Um, but what are some what are some of the other characteristics of a dignity culture, and why did it arise? Yeah, one thing we should point out is that people use these terms differently. I mean, as you mentioned before, you know, we, we talk about honor meaning something else all the time, integrity or something. And so we're using honor and dignity in a very specific sense here. Uh, we didn't, you know, we didn't invent these terms used in this way, but but other people use them differently. So when we're talking about dignity, then it's something very different from a reputation for bravery. The idea is that with dignity is that. Um, is that everybody has this moral worth that's just inherent to you as a human being, and it can't be taken away from you if somebody insults you or something. So your reputation matters less. And again, these are our tendencies. And so, and, and this exists in an environment where you do have strong state authority. So the idea is if there's a serious offense, if there's violence against you, someone harms you, someone steals from you, you go to the police, you go to the courts. But if it's not very serious, then maybe just ignore it. Um, and so that's what ends up happening in, in a dignity culture. And almost every, you know, um, it's often just completely the opposite of honor cultures in, 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 in terms of the morality that's taught. So instead of um, you know, being told that you must defend your reputation, you're told to ignore insults. You know, sticks and stones will break my bones, words will never hurt me. And so, um, you know, in, 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 a lot of, in a lot of sense, it's, it's the you know, exact opposite of the culture of honor. 
Jeez. It's important to emphasize too, I think, and, and I've read some of Brett's work on uh, personal honor or what he calls private honor and the importance of reputation uh, in a contemporary setting. But in what we're calling dignity cultures, your reputation might matter, but it can't be harmed by what others do to you. You can harm your own reputation through your own actions by doing something that's a violation of moral rules, but you cannot have your reputation shattered by others harming you. It's them who are in the wrong and not you versus in an honor culture. You're the one who experiences shame if you've been victimized by others. And it's up to you then to demonstrate with a show of violence often, you know, if, if somebody has insulted you, even if they're wrong. Whereas the idea in a dignity culture would be if they're wrong, then ignore it. Who cares? Yeah. And if you responded to them, you would be lowering themselves, lowering yourself to their level. Yeah. And, and be undignified. By the law. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I mean, I guess, so um, uh, where police state or the state is strong, dignity cultures will rise. I would, I'm guessing democracy or egal- this idea of egalitarianism is another prerequisite, right? That the idea that people are value in and of themselves, they have worth. Um, and that doesn't matter. Rank doesn't matter. It's just, you have worth. So that's, is that another prerequisite to democracy and egalitarianism? Um, yes, honor, honor and dignity both are connected to equality, egalitarianism in a sense, in that honor disputes are between equals, um, but they're often in a stratified society where, you know, so there's this exclusive group that has honor and other people who are below them, slaves or whatever, don't. And so, yeah, with the uh, with democracy, um, you, you end up having the idea that everybody has worth and, and it's... Um, and so when there's not an exclusive group that's thought of as, as you know, um, having more moral worth of some kind, then um, I, I think that that's one of the things that weakens honor too. Is, was there, is, is, there, is there a time frame here? I know it's really squidgy when you're talking about transitions to moral cultures, um, but would it be safe to say like industrialization in the United States is when you really see that transition from honor culture to dignity culture? Starting before industrialization, perhaps, because one of the incidents we mentioned in our paper to illustrate the transition was the duel between Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr. And this occurred because, you know, both men thought they had to defend their reputations through fighting. And yet after the duel, Burr was vilified for killing Hamilton. So that shift, at least in the northern regions of the country, took place in the early 19th century. But I think you're right that as industrialization picked up, uh, the transition quickened and reached its fullest, especially in until well after the Civil War. Yeah, I'm guessing that's when uh, police power and state power was actually fully established in the United States. Because, yeah, you're right. Up until about 1900, I mean, it really was the Wild West still here in the West. Um, it wouldn't be for a few years until we would actually have... Uh, governments, working governments in these, in these really remote areas. Um, so that brings us to, uh, to victim culture, victimhood culture you're seeing now. So let's talk about uh, the characteristics of, of victimhood culture and what, and what you saw in the broader culture that made you suspect that we are transitioning to another moral culture to handle conflict. Um. We began seeing these things on on college campuses, uh, or you know, coming from them. I mean, one um, 
one incident occurred in, in um, March of 2013, and this is kind of when we started thinking about this. There was, um, there was an incident at Oberlin College where they, they shut down the campus, I mean, canceled classes after a student um, saw someone they believe was wearing a Klan robe. And at, at the time, we were, we were sort of amazed by this. You know, I mean, I, it, it seemed like um, it seemed very unlikely that there was a chapter of the Ku Klux Klan at Oberlin College. And it did turn out that, you know, that, that it was somebody in a bathrobe or, or, or a towel or, or blanket or something. And so you know, there's that, that um, you, you, you had this idea of people at Oberlin College who, who thought that they, they were living in an environment that was kind of a hotbed of racism. Well, at the same time, you know, so... Um, we were looking at, at things, and, and a, a colleague pointed me toward this Oberlin microaggressions website. This was the first time I had uh, had seen the um, term microaggression. And so these are, um, you know, the idea is that there are these slights, uh, even unintentional slights, that are experienced by minority groups, and that they cause real harm. You know, um, and so the students on um, the Oberlin microaggressions website. We're documenting all these little things that they that they called microaggressions that were examples of racism or some kind other kind of dominance. You know, there was um there was a student who said that she was in the gym and overheard a professor saying that uh, that she was glad both she and her husband had blue eyes. And and the student then comments and says, "I don't want casual racism in my professors." And you know, there are other incidents like this that were you know. Small matters, if anything, it's kind of a matter of, of interpretation. But but um, but the idea was that they were trying to highlight these things, and so it didn't seem like what what we're familiar with as a, as a culture of dignity, where you ignore slights. They weren't you're not only not ignoring them, they're broadcasting them, not giving you know you know not giving people the the benefit of the doubt on, on intentions and things like that. And so we thought, you know, what's going on? Is it you know? It, is it a culture of honor? You know, so in honor cultures, people are famously sensitive to slight. But obviously, in this case, these people are not are not responding violently. They're not fighting duels or harming people. They are complaining and, and complaining to third parties. And so, and they're especially, you know, what you see that's very different from honor cultures. In an honor culture, when you're slighted, you use violence because the whole point is to show that you're not weak. You're not a victim. You're, you're somebody who can handle your own conflicts and your own affairs. And here they were uh, broadcasting their, their weakness and vulnerability. So you had something that wasn't really um, uh, um, honor or dignity. And we began trying to, to, to think about what that was and what we would call it and what were the characteristics of this new culture. Okay. So let's talk about microaggressions. And I, I know it's kind of, it's become into the, the mainstream uh, recently, I think this year is when I, you really start seeing it in all the newspapers and magazines and things like that. Um, but for our listeners who aren't familiar with it, you gave one example of microaggression that where professor said, I'm glad I have blue eyes. Um, what are some other examples of microaggressions that are, are common microaggressions? Uh, there are almost too many to keep track of at this point. I was reading a news story day yesterday saying that using the term politically correct is a microaggression <laughs> that was recently yeah politically correct is now politically incorrect yeah there is uh, there was a complaint about um the term america is a melting pot rather that happened in your neck of the woods oh did it the there's, there's a document put out by the university of california it's um it was a, it, as part of a, a, a 
a teacher training thing, or, you know, some training for faculty. That, and it has about 52 examples of microaggressions listed. And yeah, some of them were, were things like that. America is a melting pot. I don't believe in race. Or um, I think the most qualified person should get the job. Well, those are probably like the more extreme examples in the sense that those are things that, uh, that get most disputed. Like people would say these aren't offenses at all. But others, um, you know, others are things that you might say to people that, are, that come across very awkwardly. And one, one of the things that's given as an example a lot is asking an Asian person, uh, where are you from? Or it could be a Latino or someone. But the idea is that, you know, you know where are you from? And then they might, answer, they might answer Seattle. And you say, no, no, where are you really from? And, and the <laughs> idea is that, is that you're, you're assuming that they're, they're, they're not American, they don't belong here. That's, that's how it's interpreted. Um, and it can be things like um, you know, asking the, uh, the white mother of a black child, is that child really yours? And, and, and things. So they range from things that most of us would think of as, you know, either slightly offensive or at least awkward, you know, or don't, you know, you would avoid saying these things to make, you know, and try not to make people uncomfortable if you could. But they range from that to things that are just sort of, Ordinary you know, conversation topics. You know, where you know where are you from can be that too, you know, depending on how it's asked. Or um, or political opinions like opposition to affirmative action. You know, that, that, you know that, that are actually being called microaggressions. But it's but you, what you see is look, the commonality is that it's it, it, the idea is that there are people who are in victim groups. So so groups that are oppressed or dominated in some way. That's the idea. And that when people from other groups say these things to them, they, um, they, they put them down, they make them feel uncomfortable. And you, know, you notice they're calling these things a kind of aggression. We don't, you know, we don't usually call it an aggression when you do something unintentional. Like it's, it, you know, bumping into somebody wouldn't be called a physical aggression. But in this case, it is. And part of the idea is that they're saying it, can, it does this, this serious harm to people, even if it's unintentional. And I'm curious, why has this arisen now? I mean, what is it, what purpose does it serve? Because I understand honor culture where um, you need to be sensitive to slights because your reputation uh, uh, is everything. Your life depends on it. Your livelihood will depend on it. Uh, your the livelihood of your family, your tribe depends upon it. But what purpose does it serve to be so sensitive to slights in a culture where the state is strong if you have need to take recourse, you could take recourse. Just trying to figure out what, what cultural or sociological purpose uh, does being sensitive to microaggressions uh, serve? Well, we don't explain these phenomena so much with their purposes or end goals. Um, the purpose for an individual engaging in any behaviors can vary. Sure. But we focus more on the, the, the structural conditions that shape this. And one of the things we argue is that when you have a mixture of very easy access to third parties, such as superiors or uh, to the public opinion as a whole through the electronic mob, this facilitates relying on complaint to third party, perhaps to the point of becoming over-reliance on third party. People might lose their willingness or ability to even respond verbally to something they find awkward or offensive and say, maybe you shouldn't say that, here's why this is offensive, or I disagree with you. And so complaining becomes more attractive as a strategy. They, um, 
I mean, the, the people doing this uh, who are uh, are making the microaggression complaints and, and these things would would see their. I mean, what, what, from their standpoint, they would say that the, the reason is that um, there's all this oppression and we have to combat it. Now, one of the things that that um, that has interested us is that these kinds of complaints about these minor offenses occur in environments where you have fewer major offenses, right? More, you know, fewer macroaggressions. So there are, you know, these elite universities uh, are highly tolerant environments and there's very, you know, there's very little um, overt racism and that kind of thing. That it's, it's a highly egalitarian, but also diverse society. So, you know, many most egalitarian societies in the past get you know when I say society, I just mean a group of egalitarian social settings in the past have not been so diverse. But there is a lot of diversity. What happens in an environment where there's a lot of equality is that people are you know are concerned if you put someone down in some way or you know elevate yourself above someone. And where there's a lot of diversity, uh, then people are are very become very concerned with putting down particular groups, particular cultural groups. So what is seen as offensive then, and so uh, in these environments, what seems most offensive is putting down a minority, you know, an oppressed cultural group. And so they end up focusing on very, you know, even, even minor incidents of that. Um, and uh, and so so it, it's partly then because of the lack of macroaggressions that, that, there's, that there's this concern for microaggressions. Wedding season is coming up, and if you are preparing for the big day, I know wedding planning can be really intimidating, but finding the perfect suit shouldn't be. Indochino makes it easy to get a fully customizable suit right from your home. Don't just wear any suit on your big day. Wear a custom made-to-measure suit. Suits start at just $499, which is about the same price you'd pay for an off-the-rack suit at a department store. And they've also got custom made-to-measure shirts starting at just $89. So I've talked about my Indochino suit on the podcast before. They've been a longtime podcast sponsor. It's navy blue. The measuring process was super easy. They got these video guides you follow. You'll need another set of hands to help you out with that. But the really fun part is customizing it. Got to customize how I wanted the lapels on the jacket, the pockets, the lining. I went no pleats on the pants on this suit. A lot of fun. And then in a few weeks, you have a made-to-measure custom suit sent directly to your door. When planning your wedding, get a suit as unique as you with Indochino. Go to Indochino.com and use code MANLINESS to get 10% off any purchase of $399 or more. That's I-N-D-O-C-H-I-N-O.com, promo code MANLINESS. All right, if you have a family, then you need to get term life insurance to protect them. It's one of the smartest financial decisions you can make, and the start of the new year is the perfect time to get it done so you can focus on whatever else the year has in store for you. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents, to help you get a high-quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric has flexible policies that fit your family and your budget, with quality policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee, and you can cancel at any time. I remember when I was a new dad, I had a lot of thoughts going through my head. One of them was, how can I take care of my family when I'm gone, if something happens to me? Well, it's one of the first things I did. I got term life insurance, one of the best decisions I made. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash manliness. That's meetfabric.com slash manliness. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash manliness. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states, 
Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Daylight saving time is starting up again. The goal of this is to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting our clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day, but if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There is only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. And right now, you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com manliness. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to help you find qualified candidates. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you can reach more of the right people. ZipRecruiter smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. Spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post a job on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash manliness. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Picture that thing you've always wanted to learn. All right, you got that in your head? Now picture learning it from the person who's literally the best at it in the world. That's what you get with Masterclass. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Masterclass offers over 180 world-class instructors, and many of these instructors are former AOM podcast guests. You can learn negotiation from Chris Voss, leadership skills from Jocko Willink, how to master your habits with James Clear. Plus, every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's no risk. So recently, I went through the Masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. A lot of useful information in there. Talked about the value of knowing a negotiation, how to use your body language and speech patterns to get your best out of a negotiation. Very well done. I really enjoyed it and got a lot out of it. Right now, listeners of our podcast can get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com AOM. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com AOM. Masterclass.com AOM. Check out the masterclass on negotiation with Chris Voss. Gotcha. So, what you're, I mean, what the point you guys make in the paper is that the victimhood culture, the culture of victimhood, is it's sort of it's a combination of honor and dignity culture. So, it takes the um, the the sensitivity to slights uh, of the honor culture with the relying on third parties to mete out justice for you of the dignity culture. Correct. Correct. Mm. Okay. And, and just to, and just to be clear, like you, you, um, one of you all just said that it's not, doesn't have to be necessarily a, um, uh, an authority, right. It doesn't have to necessarily be the, the, pol- uh, the, the campus, um, administration or the police. What a lot of, uh, these individuals who, uh, use microaggressions, like they, they go online. Like you said, they have, there's a website dedicated to listing out microaggressions and then they'll tweet it out in the hopes of getting boning up support, um, of their the, the offenses that they've felt they've received. Correct. You definitely see a lot of online complaint in this manner. And in a sense, you know, the public at large, if one has access to a large number of listeners or viewers or other potential supporters, that third party, due to its size, is almost like an authority. I mean, conceivably, somebody's life could be derailed because of large-scale public shaming or complaining. Um, One of the things, too, is is to say about um, what people are doing. I mean, you can have various various reasons for making a complaint, but we're we're saying that, you know, the reason we call it a victimhood culture is because victimhood becomes a kind of status instead of honor. You know, uh, uh, um, so honor is a form of status. Dignity somewhat, except that it's, you know, the idea is that everybody holds it, you know, unless you, you do something, you know. Um, 
but um, but but this kind of you get a kind of status from being a uh, from being a victim, and so there is this incentive then to claim victimhood. You get you know there are not only um, personal benefits that might accrue. You might get uh, invited to the White House if you're you know the, the point he was arrested um, for uh, making the clock, and then um, you know and then he's invited to the White House not because he did anything you know. Um, um, so praiseworthy, but it, but but because he was was victimized, and so victimhood becomes a kind of status. You can see that there would be an incentive at the individual level to compl- to to um, to make uh, claims of victimhood, but also then as a as a political tactic. So um, so it is part of, of of mobilizing people for a political cause for fighting oppression, things that, that they're seeing there, and so they're trying to show this pattern of victimization. Um, and, um, you know, and that's one thing. And, and also, and we can talk about this maybe later too, but when we're talking about a victimhood culture, we see it maybe, maybe elements of it are throughout the, the, throughout American society, but we, we really only see, um, a full blown victimhood culture in, within certain college campuses and, and it wouldn't be even you know, dominant among the students necessarily there, but so it's a very kind of small enclaves where it's arising. Maybe it's going to get bigger. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, that, in, that incentive to, to become a victim, you all give examples of individuals who create, you know, falsify um, instances of being a victim so they can get that, I don't know, support or maybe to further a political cause. Can you talk about some of those uh, examples of people creating faux outrage just to, I don't know why, just because they get the attention they want? Well, we we talked a little about hate crime hoaxes, um, and so this is um, you know it's something we also see on campuses and from the same circles of people who are um, are broadcasting um, microaggression complaints and asking for uh, trigger warnings and these things. I mean, obviously, this is something that is not um, it's not exactly the same kind of thing because everybody, you know, most people would, would of course, condemn you if you, you know, lie about being uh, being a victim. But um, but there, but you see these popping up at universities, these these hate crime hoaxes where um, someone. So in, in this case, so we, we talked about um, you know, the idea that, um, uh, you know, microaggression complaints are made where there aren't very many macroaggressions. But one thing to do is if you wanted to point to some macroaggressions and there aren't any, you can make them up. And so, so we've had you've seen examples of people who have um, eventually victimized themselves. They, um, they, um, there was a, um, a woman at um, um, one of the Claremont colleges in, in California who was a, you know, a visiting assistant professor, and she slashed her tires. She was going to speak at an you know, anti-racism event. She slashed her tires and wrote racial slurs on the car and these kinds of things to make it look like she was the victim of, of racists. And, and there have been other other examples uh, like, like that, too. Um, you know, someone at um, uh, Duke University hanging a, a black doll up in a noose uh, again, it looked like white racists had done it, but it was the the, um, the anti-racist um, activists who had. Interesting. So good example of yeah of people you know, where you see people claiming victimhood even when they haven't been victimized. Yeah, and, and there's been instances when I've seen that where you know it come to find out it's a hoax, and then you see these individuals who are you know, who are really keyed into you know promoting a cause. Well, it was a hoax, but it rose awareness. Right, we're having this conversation. 
that's important. And uh, if I can understand, like, hey, we need to discuss this sort of stuff, but then the idea that it's based on a false premise, it's like, well, I don't, I don't know. It takes, kind of takes the winds out of the, the sails of, uh, of your uh, point you're trying to make. Um, another interesting point you all made was that even individuals who um, aren't victims, but are actually, you know, considered the dominant group, will use the culture of victimhood, correct? So like, you know, uh, affirmative action is, is reverse racism or like individuals who are the, the, um, who are the targets of, who are supposedly doing these microaggressions. Well, I'm, I'm the victim here. Like I, I'm the one who's, you know, being, um, called out on Twitter and it's my, my life is miserable. So it seems like both everyone wants to get a piece of the, the victimhood action. And that's one thing I find fascinating about various kinds of human behavior, including kinds of conflict management, is that they sometimes have this self-replicating or self-reinforcing quality. One example that occurs to us is uh, gangs. You drop a violence gang into a neighborhood without a stable legal system, and other gangs form to defend themselves from this initial gang. They might victimize others in turn, creating still more gangs. And I think what we see in this spread of victim and culture is a similar phenomenon when the structural conditions are right. Sometimes the most effective way to defend yourself from an accusation of being privileged and dominant is to point to how you actually are victimized and to rely on the same language and style of complaining as your opponents. And you even see this with people who might be personally opposed to framing conflicts in that way or using this tactic. They find the most efficient way to shut down the opposition or gain some support in the debate is to use the very same tactic of complaining of victimhood that they might condemn otherwise. This is an interesting example from blogger Megan McArdle who talks about how she was in an argument with somebody and he was accusing her of microaggressing and she responded that he was mansplaining to her, <laughs> meaning to point out that it's, you know, this is how easy it is to microaggress, but it actually worked and shut down the argument She's like, no, my point wasn't to shut you down, but it illustrates how easily one can do that. Yeah, uh, that's really funny. So, I mean, I mean, I guess the downside of this, so like uh, honor cultures had this, uh, the idea was that there's, you create this vicious cycle of um, of blood feuding, right? Uh, dignity cultures, I'm actually, I'm, whenever I read your paper, like I'm a big fan of dignity culture. Um, but with like victimhood culture, it seems like the, the downside would be that, okay, you're using this tactic to resolve conflict, but if both parties can use it, then like conflict never gets resolved, right? On a meta level, right? Every, I mean, if you can call someone a victim or you can say, say yourself a victim, the other person say they're victims, like problems still exist, um, but nothing's happened. Yeah. One thing I mean, in, in thinking of what might be the downsides, I mean, what, what, you know, the kinds of, um, you know, if, if honor uh, culture leads to a lot of conflict and it's violent conflict in that case, but that it's the same. It's the same thing here. I mean, dignity. The idea is that if you're ignoring lots of slights, you're you're not letting conflicts get going, right? You're essentially tolerating a lot of behavior that you do find offensive. Um, and uh, but that but you can see that how how that would help people to um, to have relationships with you know with people to to have uh, you know civil relationships and to and to not have a lot of conflict. Well, if you're encouraging people to take offense at slights, then it's it's not like that somehow solves something. It it, it often you know as in, in uh, you know you're saying it, it provokes responses. I mean, people 
people don't like being, you know, called racists or, or for, for their, um, you, know, for, you know, because of whatever they said in, in, a, in a conversation. You're likely to promote more conflict. And that's one thing. Conflict leads to conflict. And so um, by, um, by making complaints over minor matters, matters you're, you're definitely going to increase the amount of conflict. Again, maybe that's a good thing. I, I don't, you know, I don't think it is. But I mean, you can, you can see somebody arguing that, um, well, we don't need to, to ignore these things because they're so important. They're doing so much harm. You know, we don't, you know, we don't uh, for example, we don't say ignore it if somebody is violent towards you. We say call the police. So yeah. there are, we don't, but, um, but yeah, you're going to have more conflict and, and, or you might have people avoiding one another. If you, you know, if you're going to offend someone when you talk to them and try to have a conversation, maybe you just don't bother. And um, so th- those are, are, you know, the kinds of things where, it seems like it's it's unlikely to accomplish what um, what those who are are promoting the idea um, want. I mean, they're they're not wanting more conflict, more racial and, and other kinds of conflict, um, and and more avoidance of one another. Interesting. Um, so you guys talk a little bit too about the conflict between conflict management styles. Um, so, I mean, we're seeing this now with this, as we're transitioning in some areas of the country, I'm not, again, we want to reiterate, this is like not happening on a culture wide level. People are sure. Some people think that, but it's happening in very few segmented places. Um, but there, there's, uh, conflicts between these two different types of moral cultures. So you have the individuals who are appealing to a victimhood culture, bumping up against these people who are the dignity culture people. Um, how is that manifesting itself, uh, I guess I guess the only place you see it manifest is in the blogosphere or in magazines or newspapers. I mean, is, are you seeing manifestations of that of that conflict? I would say certainly we are seeing manifestations of it, in the sense that people will write blogs and articles complaining about the oversensitivity of college students or the activist set, who in turn will write blogs and articles complaining about the insensitivity of others who condemn them or don't understand the nature of their complaints. Gotcha. And um, I'm curious too. So you, you, you all talk about in the paper that um, that cultures of morality influence other aspects of life, right? So a culture of honor um, made people like very sensitive to insults and to insults. They, they, they worked on being warlike so they can be ready to like pounce and you know, go after a guy if he needed to. Um, how is a culture of victimhood influencing other aspects of just daily life? Um, well, there, there's so many examples here. Maybe, um, maybe Jason will have some too, but I mean, I, I could just give uh, two. One is, one is the idea of safe spaces. So you see a lot of the same language, you know, when you're thinking of microaggressions, it's like somebody has done a kind of violence to you by, by using the word. But um one of the terms used by by activists is uh, this idea of a, of a safe space. So sometimes the whole idea is that the whole college should be a safe space. Sometimes there are, are particular places. There was um, last fall, so uh, one year ago at Brown University, a speaker, um, Wendy McElroy, um, who considers herself kind of a libertarian feminist, but she came to speak um, at a at a debate kind of thing with with another feminist. And um, the idea was that she was going to criticize the term rape culture and, and, and critique that. And there was a group on campus that, that created um, uh, these, uh, a safe space, which was a room where there was Play-Doh and, and coloring books and cookies 
and people could escape from the talk if they needed to and uh, and, and come to the safe space. And so, you know, one one student who made use of this safe space uh, said, I was feeling bombarded by a lot of viewpoints that really go against my uh, uh, dearly and closely held beliefs. So the idea is that if you're bombarded by viewpoints that go against your beliefs, you're, you're made unsafe. It's something that, you know, you have to uh, get away from. I mean, I think somebody recently said, um, said if you've gone through four years of, of college and you haven't you know, had your views challenged, you should get your money back. You know, so the, the old idea would be it's good to be challenged in your beliefs. And this is that you know, not only is it not good, but it's something that's actually harming you that you need to be protected from. Something that's equated with violence. Yeah. Considering a form of destruction or violence to offend or to challenge someone's beliefs or make them uncomfortable in any way. And, um, and the, the, you know, as thinking of other things, in, one, in honor cultures, um, people boast about their, uh, about their uh, bravery and things like that. And, and in one of the things in dignity cultures, you're, not, you're supposed to be really modest, don't boast. And so we would, we would tend to see that in victimhood cultures, people are more likely to boast about, about being a victim and about, about their um, weakness. You know, so when I, I started seeing on, um, you know, le- letters that students would write, like um, you know, for um, in applications for graduate school or for, for uh, um, awards and things, it would all be, they would all be focused on all these horrible things that have happened to them, you know, instead of focusing on what, what I can do. I mean, and, and I can, you can kind of see that some of it is, is some of it isn't necessarily victim, but it's the idea that I've overcome these things, but a lot of it is not. It's, 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 um, and, and I think you know, there's that parallel with honor, and also in honor cultures where you might shame cowards. You know, in victimhood culture, you you know, there's this shaming of the privileged and the you know, shaming of oppressors. So people tell people check your privilege and and things like that, which is you know, kind of the, the equivalent. You see, if a coward is the worst thing you can be in honor culture, then being um, blind, you know, privileged but blind to it. Is is or, or an actual oppressor is the worst thing that you can be. In a yeah. Culture. So so Beowulf wouldn't have a good time on American campuses, or or Achilles. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's interesting. This whole idea. So this idea that uh, victimhood culture arises when um, things are extremely diverse, egalitarian. Uh, the state is the power. The, the the state is strong. But at the same time, as you said, that it sort of forces people to turn inwards because they don't want to get out and mix it up with people and the the fear that they're going to possibly offend. And it seems like I'm just kind of following this. And I, mean, I know you guys don't really take this leap in your paper, but it seems like victimhood culture could actually destroy the thing, like it could destroy democracy in a way. Um, the thing that made victimhood culture possible, like victimhood culture will destroy it. Everyone has to turn inwards and like not actually mix it up with people with that are different from them um, because they might be offended. I don't know. I'm just speculating there. I know you guys don't do that in your paper. You, you're just sociology. You guys are descript- describing. You're not Nostradamus or prescribing. We're, we're maybe doing some of it, a, a little bit of it, and something we're writing now. So, uh, Jason, do you want to? Yeah, I'm curious. Like, where are you, where are you guys? Where are you going to take this work that you've done? Um, where are you going to go with it? Um, so we're, we're uh, hopefully we'll, we'll write a book, um, but um, right now we're writing an article that's kind of a response to some of the, uh, the criticisms and things that we've gotten. And um, mm. we're trying to... Um, Has there been a lot of criticism? 
Uh, Not a yeah. whole lot, actually. A lot of the response has been positive. A lot of it, yeah. Yeah, there, like, so I guess... There have been some misunderstandings. <laughs> sure. There have been, you know, so... Um, Connor Friedersdorf published uh, something in The Atlantic about it, and um, he, he published a, a multi-part series, and one of them was uh, where he was publishing readers' complaints about the term victimhood culture. And so, yeah, you have people saying, well, the term victimhood culture is a microaggression. And one person said, you know, know, it's a microaggression, actually a real aggression, you know. Um, So, (laughs) which, you know, is kind of to be expected, right, if if we're saying that, you know, um, that the adherents of this culture take offense very easily, they they take offense at at the name that we've given it to. But, um, you know, we we have reasons for that, you know, for for the use of the term that, uh, you know, but... um, but yeah, th- that's been the most of it that they they see the, uh, the term as as offensive, and in their you know various arguments. So I've tried to um, you know to think about. I mean, when we in our article, especially we're 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 um, describing something and trying trying to describe and explain, and we're not um, you know issuing moral condemnations. Uh, but but um, but it is. I think it is useful. Um, you know, and this is sociological work can be useful in and understanding um, in, in helping make moral decisions, right? Even though it can't kind of say what's right or wrong, but if you're thinking about the consequences, the natural consequences of particular cultures, you know, as I said before, victimhood culture is going to lead to more conflict. Now, maybe you'll decide the trade-offs are worth it, but um, but it can it, it can you can even think about you know what are the trade-offs? So. Are micro one one thing would be are microaggressions even causing a lot of harm, and so uh, Greg Lukianoff and Jonathan Haidt posted a big you know, piece in the Atlantic that got a lot of attention, the coddling of the American mind, and what they said is that um, you know that if you uh, draw on insights from um, um, you know, from uh, uh, from psychology, right, from um, from uh, from therapy, the, the idea is usually that. You know, you don't want to magnify things and make them bigger than they are. Um, imagine that you know people's intentions when you don't. And so they, they see these things, uh, uh, microaggression complaints, demands for trigger warnings and stuff as, as probably harming the people who are um, who they're intended to help, you know, because they're, they're making them, um, you know, not only unprepared for society at large, but, but probably leading to anxiety and depression and, and these other things. And so, and yeah, I think it's also... If um, if in dignity culture, the idea is that there is this powerful state, but we don't invoke it for small things, only for big things, right? And so that that's kind of, um, you, know, uh, you know, there's that discrepancy because you want general freedom in your life, except if there's violence and things like that, and then you want the Leviathan to come in, right, and and, uh, and, and suppress it. Um, and, and but um, but if you you know if you invoke the Leviathan for um, for every little thing, then you, yeah, I mean, you're, you really are going to destroy the kind of um, um, liberal democratic order that has been associated with with dignity. I think. So I think it, right, and that is one example we draw on in our discussion, uh, talking about social control in totalitarian societies. And I'm not making some claim we're headed towards totalitarianism. I'm not being an alarmist, but um, we do talk about how. One of the things that makes totalitarian societies totalitarian is that people can drag the state into every little dispute, usually by accusing their neighbor of being disloyal or whatever, uh, being part of some uh, 
category that will attract social control from the state. And a lot of the executions you see in a place like Nazi Germany or uh, Stalinist Russia are people informing on each other as a means of handling their conflicts. So I'm, uh, again, and I'm not making the argument we're near that in any way, but this, your point about uh, democracy made me think of this, that uh, carrying forward this culture of complaint far enough in one direction, you get something that looks like totalitarianism. Interesting. It would be. It would be totalitarianism if it were the state doing it, right? Wouldn't it, Jason? I mean, it, it's something. There's something like it on college campuses that's arising. Oh. You know, you're not. I mean, but the difference is, of course, that they're not executing people; they're just banning speakers. I mean, which is a, less of a consequence. But there's there is this kind of mindset. I mean, there was um, the University of Manchester. Manchester recently had oh, to have two two journalists in to talk. Here was going to be the talk. Um, from liberation to censorship, does modern feminism have a problem with free speech? And there were two speakers coming in and talk about this. Then both of the speakers got banned by the student union. <laughs> um, and they said that it was because, um, you know, and you know, there was an editorial, um, you know, um, and it's, it, 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 that was another, another incident actually. But, but, uh, but, but they, um, yeah, but you see, you see this happening all the time. Speakers being banned. The idea is that they can't even come on a campus and speak because they're going to imperil people's safety. So that, that, yeah, that's that's a totalitarian mindset. Even though you know it's not nothing yeah. like nothing like being sent to the gulag, but it's, uh, it's lack. I mean, I think you even even see it online, right? Like when individuals who do something like microaggress online, like they could be completely shamed on the internet, and like their life in the real world could be ruined. Like they lose a job. Uh, People send, I don't know, they, people drive by their house and threatening phone calls, like, say they're going to kill me. Like, I guess who was, there's some like, uh, what's that French philosopher's name? Foucault? Foucault. Uh, an Afghan, yeah. Yeah, he said basically like, you know, the, the state isn't going to be the one who comes in with the totalitarianism, like with the the the, the, the jack-heeled boot against our throat. It'll just be like, we'll all just welcome it because we have, we're all watching each other and we'll just suddenly watch ourselves. Like, that's that's how totalitarianism comes. Like we just sort of allow it to happen because we're always constantly watching each other with our devices and our smartphones and the internet and all this stuff. Hmm. Interesting stuff. And I, I'm curious too, I and mean, I know you guys are sociologists and you're trying to, oh, excuse me, you're academics and you got, you're trying to be descriptive, but I mean, I, I think you don't want to cast moral judgment. It sounds like it's in your interest though, as academics to, I mean, you guys got, you guys got some skin in the game. If, uh, if, you, I mean, just from what you just said, that people objected to the idea of victimhood culture. Like, how does, I mean, it seems like victimhood culture could get in the way of uh, academic pursuits because people will say, well, that's, that, that, what you're doing is offending me, um, even though it might be true, right? Like, I mean, it, it sort of, it could prohibit people from academics from exploring uncomfortable truths that might be a net benefit to society, but it gets shut down because someone's doesn't feel safe. Exactly. Exactly. And while we don't pass any judgments at all in our original paper, we did write an editorial for the Chronicle of higher education calling for academic freedom. You know, however, whatever position you take in this debate uh, about microaggressions and so forth, you have to recognize and preserve academic freedom or else you've given away the game that the spirit of free inquiry requires. We say things, that are new and that might challenge people's beliefs and that are likely to cause offense somewhere down the line. You can't have free inquiry without offense. And that's one of the reasons we've, um, you know, we've sort of, um, 
you know, we're not activists and, and, and we don't normally make judgments and didn't in the, in the, the academic article. But um, yeah, we did make an exception there because, as you said, we are academics, and this is is crucial to our our ability to to be able to um, to do our work. Um, you can't have an an you know if the university is going to be an environment where people pursue knowledge, then people are going to be offended, and it's um, you can't have an environment like that that's free of offense. And so, you know, we're we're definitely. Um, you know, I mean, I, I don't, you know, certainly don't mind saying, you know, that I am, am critical of, of these things. I, I don't see, you know, that I mean, a university trying to deal with microaggression and then to say, well, opposition to affirmative action is a microaggression. That's banned, you know, and uh, and even they say that we're not banning it. It's just advice. But you, 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 what, what does that mean? If you're, you're in your faculty training, you're telling people not to say these things. What ultimately happens if someone says it? Says it. So it, it's either you know it's either pointless or it really does limit uh, academic freedom. Very interesting. Well, Bradley, Jason, this has been a fascinating conversation. I'm sure we could just talk more about it. Um, but uh, thank you so much for your time. Where can people learn more about the work or read the paper themselves if they wanted to? Uh, Google. It's Google. online. Okay. On various, That's where I uh, found locations. it. But we were, were the first result to come up with our names and the paper title. Okay. Yeah, so my, microaggression and moral cultures is the title of our original paper, and there, you know, there have been other things written about it. Um, Jonathan Haidt at his blog called the, the Righteous Mind wrote a post, and and many others. So it's it's um, it's pretty e- easy should be easy for people to find, or they can certainly uh, look us up and contact us if they want it. Fantastic. Well, Bradley Campbell, Jason Manning, thanks so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Brad. My guests today were Bradley Campbell and Jason Manny. They are sociologists, and uh, you can find their paper. You just got to Google it. Google honor, dignity, victimhood. You're going to find it. That's how I found it. Go check it out. I think you'll really enjoy it. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, I'd really appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. That help uh, us get some feedback on how we can improve the show, but also uh, spread the word about the show. As always, I appreciate your continued support. And until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. REMAX agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.